This podcast is brought to you by the new Yahoo Finance Premium. If you're looking to take your investing to the next level, Premium has you covered. Try it free at yahoofinance.com slash premium. I first learned about Steve Mollenkopf about five years ago. He was a rising star at Qualcomm, and he was destined to become CEO, and in fact, he is today. He's been at the company for nearly two and a half decades, and he's the first non-family member, the Jacobs family, of course, has been running this company for a long time, to run Qualcomm. It shows that, you know, he's a guy who's really stayed the course and been promoted and moved up through, you know, this business, which is very competitive. Because of what Qualcomm does, it stands at sort of the nexus of 5G and is a critical player in that developing technology. He has access to the highest levels of government not only here in the United States, but also China. The company does a tremendous amount of business in China, and you know it's very important for them to make sure the Chinese government understands what they're trying to do. Obviously, what's going on in China with regard to the United States, the trade war, et cetera, is a big problem for Qualcomm. They get about 65% of their revenues from China. And so when China sneezes, they get the flu, never mind a cold. So it's very hard to figure out where this is all going. He was very clear about that. So it's a real dilemma for the chief executive of a company to try to plan a business where the unknowns are so vast. Steve Mollenkopf, CEO of Qualcomm. Steve, great to see you. Andy, thanks for having me. So let's start by talking about China and the trade war and your involvement in Qualcomm's involvement. Where do things stand right now? Well, I think for us, it's um, every, like everybody else, we're trying to navigate it. Um, by and large, it has meant to us that um, you know, we have to figure out what we can do with Huawei, what we can ship to them. Not a huge customer to us, uh, you know, uh, but an important one. Uh, so we're trying to figure out how to deal with that. Uh, there are also some dynamics in the, um, related to sort of how uh, the the ban, for example, is impacting Huawei that impact our business. But by and large, the things that are dominating our business tend to be more technology issues involving or involving the entire world versus, I guess, the particulars of the trade war. But like everyone else, we're trying to see uh, what's going to happen and when, and uh, we probably don't have any great insight versus anyone else. Right, about 65% of your revenues come from China, those have been negatively impacted or the, the scale of the business, right? Well, I think not, not so much, actually. If you look, we have about 65% of our, of our revenue, but that's really because the handset industry itself is the, the, the ecosystem and the supply chain tends to be um, based in China and will be, I think, for some, some time. Uh, we have had some issues related to, I would say, anticipation of 5G coming and people I would say working through inventory, but then also accelerating their 5G plans. I'm not sure if that's trade war related or more related to the uh, technology migration and the anticipation of 5G. Right, we want to talk about 5G a lot, but before we do that, I want to stick with China and ask you another question about Huawei because you have a royalty a dispute with them. Where does that stand? Uh, we're in the middle of discussing discussion that with us. It's been uh, going on for about two years, a little bit more than two years. Separate from the whole trade Correct. Problems, Yeah, right? I would say completely independent uh -huh. uh, of that. Um, we've had an interim agreement. Uh, we're no longer uh, working on interim agreements. We're talking toward a final agreement. 
nothing new really to update folks on other than uh, we are talking and uh, we're focused on trying to get to a final agreement, which I think is, uh, you know, is, is a good trend. And so is Huawei a threat to U.S. security? Uh, you know, I think it's really not something that I can answer. Um, I think they're a, a very strong technical um, contributor, uh, as, as we are, as are a, a number of other companies are. But, you know, I think there's uh, maybe a lot of uh, discussion about that, but certainly not at the commercial level. I think it's more at the government level. Okay. And, and 5G, let's switch over to that and talk about that, because that's the promise in the future of your company, our parent company as well, Verizon yes. here. Our CEO, Hans Vesberg, talks a lot about 5G. Um, and I think I've seen you say that, you know, in 12 months or so, handsets will be out there. Really the case? I think handsets are already out there. Yeah, fact, well, if you look, If you look right. at Verizon's already but, uh, shipping. But actually, you know, really usable and sort of uh, in the sense that people are, are able to access 5G networks. Yeah, you're seeing tremendous uh, velocity on the, the movement toward 5G, and not just at the high tier, but at the, at the mid-tier and, uh, and, and, you know, at price points that are really very accessible to people, not just in the United States, but also worldwide. A couple things I think I would, I would highlight. One, uh, in China, for example, China Mobile has come out and said that by the end of 2020, they would like all handsets above 2,000 RMB, or roughly 300 bucks, uh, will be 5G enabled. We think that will be at the 3,000 level at the beginning of 2020. So, you know, in six months, less than six months, you will start to see the entire portfolio of everything above about 430 bucks will be um, 5G enabled. That's, that's tremendous, actually. That's about 40%. I guess by the end of the year, it'll be about 40% of their handset volume will be accessible to, to 5G. Tremendous, actually. That speed relative to 4G is amazing. You even see in the United States with the Samsung device, um, the S10 5G, which Verizon also is, uh, is shipping, that device already looks like a 4G device. You know, people are using it today. They don't even know it's 5G enabled. It is 5G enabled, and as the, as the networks roll out, it'll, be, it'll move over there pretty quickly. So what's happening is handset manufacturers are anticipating that. They know the technology is at the maturity that they can go quickly, and so they're going very quickly toward 5G, and of course, we're, we're enabling them. So it's, it's a, a lot of activity really related to how quickly can I get 5G in the hands of the handset manufacturers and across portfolios. Steve, how is 5G going to change the life of the average consumer, first from a handset standpoint and then just generally in their homes? I think you're going to have uh, more speed. Obviously, people like more speed, but really what you're going to see is the ability to get access to this will, will grow dramatically, meaning, meaning coverage, availability of, uh, of, of uh, just un, unlimited data plans. If you look, and you know, this is just sort of uh, our, our view, obviously the, the carriers have different uh, economics on this, you have tremendous improvement in the cost per bit. So you know, one estimate is it goes down by a factor of 30. Just tremendous business models that are up, up for grabs as you get that much capacity comes online. Part of that is due to the technology, part of it is due to the spectrum allocation. Uh, so there's a, it's a real big change in terms of the economics of providing this technology to the consumer. And I think there'll be a lot of experimentation with the business model. You're seeing, particularly in the United States, you're seeing um, companies try to figure out, can I, can I have a business that competes with wireline operators and, and all that? But just it's due to the raw capacity and the, and the tremendous economics that come with this transition that apart from what the consumer will see, which will be significant, 
you'll also see a lot of business model evolutions, which we're excited about. Yeah, I'm trying to think of, you know, some examples. I mean, people are always asking me, you know, on the consumer side. So that will mean that I will be able to, what, access a driverless car network or, yeah. you know, healthcare uh, over the internet or things like that? I would say it comes in two different phases. Mm -hmm. The more G, okay, so that's just the cellular industry will get more capacity and more capability to the handset. And, and if you look, you know, when you see, when you use a handset that has a gigabit per second plus, it's really impressive actually. And just the, the number of people that'll have access to that technology as Verizon and others roll out their network, just tremendous. Uh, that's, that's sort of phase one, the more G, which is cellular is going to get more capability and it's gonna be great uh, for the consumer and as well as the business model. Second, secondarily, and a couple years after the first launches, which we are in now, you'll start to see this sort of massive IoT, you'll have the security, the low latency, all of the second wave of features that come in with the standard will open up new industries to 5G. And this is the first time I think that you see um, the cellular roadmap. So the, the roadmap of cellular, how it's progressing, really impacting big established industries. So if you go talk to a car company, mm -hmm. they're trying to figure out what's my 5G strategy? How do I, what's my connected car issue? And not just because that's how the consumer sees the car experience, tremendous amount of work to make sure they can take advantage of a car being connected. The same thing's gonna happen in healthcare, education, anything that's being digitized, by and large, the most important part of the digitization occurs over wireless, and increasingly it'll be happening over 5G. That's why there's just so much economic impact due to 5G and why so many people wanna be a part of it and why the governments are taking you know, so much interest in making sure that their companies and their countries are leaders. Your latest quarter was a little weak, and I think you cited that part of the reason why is because of this big transition. In other words, 2020, yeah. you'll be ramping up to 5G. Can you explain that a little sure. bit? Sure. So there are two, two things, I think. One is uh, the anticipation of 5G, and particularly in, in China, because it's moving so rapidly. They are um, essentially saying, I'm going to draw down my 4G inventory, and I'm going to transition uh, my new designs to 5G. So essentially what's happened over the last you know, two months, is that a lot of OEMs are saying, hey, let's accelerate our 5G plans, let's cancel some 4G devices, and let's go at the, the 5G things and make them happen faster. And we're really anticipating that happening uh, in the first part of the calendar year of, of 2020, if you just look at kind of how those things work through the system. That's point number one. Point number two is that due to the ban with Huawei, uh, particularly in Europe, there was a, a retrenchment. So Huawei basically came back and said, hey, I'm gonna really focus on China. And it had, I was thinking kind of one-time share shifts due to that, that um, I think impacted our business and other people's uh, businesses. But, but uh, the real, um, I think fear, or the real kind of takeaway is that, uh, boy, people are really excited about this 5G and 5G across price points, and they're accelerating their plans. So what we did was, uh, Talked about that, but also there's a lot of anticipation, I think a lot of excitement for that trend. You mentioned China ramping up, and some people have said we're in this race, a war with China over 5G. Is it really the fact that China is getting ahead, and is that something we should be worried about? I think, you know, it's interesting. We, we of course, we have a global business, and I would say we have a, uh, a seat at the table in all markets, and that applies to the United States. It also applies to, to China. And... Um, I think China is accelerating their deployment. They're gonna 
uh, I talked about on our earnings call, I, I estimated that we, they're going to have about 100,000 deployed 5G base stations by the end of this calendar year. Tremendous footprint, actually. So you're seeing that. But I don't, I don't know if I would see that as a, as a war or just how much excitement there is you know, about the technology and how people want to make sure that they're first to it. Um, it's really much more global than you know, U.S. versus China. It's really about how do these companies take advantage of this big shift in, in, uh, in technology that I think creates opportunity. I mean, we have to be on the same playing field, the same level playing field as China, though, when it comes to 5G, right? We, I mean, we don't want to be behind, do we? I don't think you want to be behind. No, no company, no country wants to be behind, be behind anybody else. And I think this is the first time that you've had, I would say, Western countries like um, the United States and and I would say uh, Korea and Japan, obviously not Western, but sort of tends to be in the, in the first wave of um, launches of technology. Typically, China might launch five years later. In some cases, it was almost 10 years later when they did it with CDMA. Uh, but now they're launching in the first year. And so what's happened is just tremendous, tremendous intensity worldwide to ramp uh, 5G. I think it's actually quite healthy for the industry. It, just, it, it really is a statement more about the significance of the technology versus anything else. Now, the reason that it draws, um, I would say, governmental interest is because if you're going to have things connected to the, uh, to the network, they want to make sure, one, that they have uh, an understanding of how secure the network is, but also they want to make sure that it's deployed first so that the use cases can be done in, um, I would say, in a controlled fashion. So if you're going to have a uh, automated cars, or you're going to have connected mm -hmm. healthcare. Those are things by necessity. Those industries develop only in partnership with technology providers like us, and Verizon and AT&T and China mm -hmm. Mobile, working with the governments to make sure that right. they're done correctly. And that's, there's a lot of demand uh, and excitement to start that process. Right. So you're CEO of a large company that makes chips, right? And the chip business is hugely interesting to our audience. I mean, yeah. people, investors, people love to invest in these companies. It's, it's such a wild and crazy industry, right? I mean, I, I look at all the deal making and what's going on in terms of changes with things like 5G. How do you keep up with all the things happening in your business? Yeah, it's funny. It's, uh, it's really two, I'd say there are two elements to it. Mm -hmm. One is uh, it's a technology business first and foremost. So it's all about technology leadership. Uh, in the cellular industry, the area that we play in, it's about technology leadership at scale and across many different technologies. And we're, and we're, we're good at doing that. The other one is, uh, I'll use a sports analogy, but, but it, is a, it is a rough gym. Like if you want to play in this gym, you have to know how to uh, take elbows and throw elbows. It's, it's, and it's because of the significance of the technology. So there's a re it's a really a very competitive, very, very competitive market at scale, meaning that you have to have global reach, you have to have technology, and uh, it's funny, I think, I think it's, um, it's a fun thing to work on because people are interested in it. You know, you're not, you're not just um, selling a widget that nobody cares about, and it's, uh, it, it attracts people to it, and I think it, uh, it's one of the reasons why I enjoy working there. Yeah, there's a lot of different dynamics. I want to talk about some of the things with the government, competitors, acquisitions, you being taken over, but let me ask you a little bit about your background. I yeah. mean, where did you grow up? You were a double E at Virginia Tech, yep. and then in graduate school. Talk about that a little bit. I grew up in Baltimore. Um, oh, I'm from Maryland too. Nice to hear that. Yeah. It's uh, we always have to burn our accent off a little bit. A little so bit, that, but but, uh, yeah. but um, 
the uh, uh, grew up in Baltimore, uh -huh. and then uh, ended up going to Virginia Tech, and then Michigan, mm -hmm. and then directly to uh, Qualcomm about almost exactly 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. Right, right while we were launching uh, CDMA back when before right. people had cell phones. So, so I've had the benefit of of uh, watching a lot of uh, G transitions, CDMA, LTE. And, and now 5G, and, and probably one of the few people still in the industry that's had that sort of tenure to be able to see all of those things. This podcast is brought to you by the new Yahoo Finance Premium. Are you ready to take your investing to the next level? With premium features, advanced data, and a sophisticated new way to stay on top of your portfolio, you can trade with complete confidence. Because it's more than just your portfolio, right? It's your money. Yahoo Finance Premium lets you trade up using tools that help you go beyond the fundamentals with industry-leading insights and detailed company profiles. You can trade up to advanced portfolio tools that help you monitor allocation, diversification, and risk. You'll discover new opportunities with detailed research reports and investment ideas that are updated every single day. So are you ready to trade up? Try it free today at yahoofinance.com premium. You're the first non-family member to run that company, correct? Yes. What, what's what was that transition like? You know, it was. Um, it, it's always uh, you know a, an unusual thing when something like that happens. But you know, remember we've I've been at the company for what twenty years before that happened, or eighteen years, nineteen years before that happened. Um, so I think uh, I used to get asked more about that, but it's it's something we probably don't even think about that much anymore. We're really more focused on, hey, wow. Look at all the opportunity with 5G, and isn't that interesting for us? So, And just one more question, the Wayback Machine. When yeah. you were a kid at Virginia Tech, I mean, what made you get interested in electrical engineering? Mm. Why did you want to do that as opposed to being an English major? Well, uh, you know, I always, I, like, like a lot of people, I liked um, technology, but I thought I'd be a mechanical engineer. And um, it ended up that I was, uh, there's a point in your, career when you're a freshman in, in engineering school where they ask you what major you want to be in. And, and I ended up having uh, a, a GPA that allowed me to have some options. And I essentially asked them, what's the hardest one to get into? And they, at that time, it was, it was electrical. I said, okay, well, I'll try that one. That seems like that's the one that would have the most opportunity. So it was that much thought, you know, not a lot yeah, of... Yeah, well, uh, that's how it goes, right? But you were up to the challenge, right? That's what you wanted. Yeah, but it was uh, you know you should you should do a lot more research than uh, <laughs> just make an arbitrary decision like that. But it, but it worked out, and I I I, uh, I enjoyed. It. I ended up studying electromagnetics in graduate school, and and uh, going away from that eventually uh, toward more systems concepts when I got to Qualcomm. But it was it's, it was fun. I, I enjoyed being an engineer. And what about the the young engineers in your company? You know, how do you like to manage them and lead them? What advice do you give them? Um, well, I don't give them that much advice anymore. You know, the, the, um, uh, uh, you have to be careful when you're a, a technically trained CEO. People will let you make decisions that you probably shouldn't be making. But um, look, it's, it's people that come out now, students that come out now are unbelievable. They have uh, a lot of, uh, I would say they're, they're more fearless, meaning that they'll go into any area. Uh, they're, they're incredibly uh, well-trained in terms of breadth of technology. Um, so for us, it's a, a lot of it is make sure they have what they need to be successful and you set uh, goals that are audacious enough that you're doing something that only only your company could do. But uh, but I'm just, you know, 
humbled by you know these kids that come out now. They're just incredible. Great. Let's talk a little bit about um, some of the issues that you face on legal front, for instance. Yeah. So you have um, a situation where the FTC has come down on your head. The DOJ seems to be on your side, though. What's the latest there? Can you explain how you're kind of in the middle between these two government entities? Yeah, I think I think there's. Um, you know, we obviously had a had a trial with the FTC, and it was well discussed, but but it effectively didn't go our way. Yep. We're in the process of uh, applying for a stay, and actually a, an appeal on the merits. Two separate things. Uh, we're now the court the the, um, the Ninth Circuit is is looking at the um, the Court of Appeals is looking at the stay. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have the DOJ weigh in on our case. There were a number of other amicus briefs that came in uh, in our side, but it's very significant, I think, for the Department of Justice to make a rule or you know file a case that basically says, um, not only uh, do we think that you should get a stay, but we think that you will ultimately prevail on the merits. Very I mean, strong. It's unusual actually. that one part of the government does that against the other part, isn't it? Yeah, and I, and I but I, it's funny because I think I think it's less about a turf war, mm-hmm. and it's more about the, the facts of the case. If you, if you read their filing, it's it's quite compelling. Um, but we'll see. We'll see how the court uh, decides. Uh, we feel very strong, very strongly that that uh, you know we will prevail. But you know you have to go through the court system to do that. Right. Switching over to Apple a little bit, you recently resolved a dispute there, but it seemed like there was a lot of bad blood between those two companies. I mean, were you guys like bitter enemies and now you like toss that aside? Effectively, yes. I mean, it, and I would say not the bitter enemies part. Look, it's, we, we, uh, there are a lot of, there's a lot of money that goes back and forth. Uh, and I think we, we both um, were able to resolve that. Um, and now the focus is really on products. If you look, Qualcomm and Apple have had this pretty long history. It actually started in the late 2000, 2009 timeframe. We started working together on, on products. And I think it's been very good. If you look at the, the products we've been able to do together, we've been able to s- support them. Um, I'm very happy that that's now 100% of the discussion between the companies, which is how do we get these two great engineering teams together and, and create products? Of course, we do that with a lot of different companies as well. Um, but that's a much more that's a much more natural discussion between the two companies, and um, something I enjoy much more than the other the other part. But we got through it; it's just business, and now we're into the product part. So you guys are all good. You and Tim Cook, you and Apple, you're all good. Yeah, and I think you don't you don't get deals like this done without the principals coming together and spending a lot of time together. So you and Tim talked this out a bit, of course. Right. And you know you can't do a deal of this magnitude without without doing that. And and uh, you know clearly the companies have have turned the page, and uh, I applaud that. I think it's great. Moving over to Europe, where you just recently were fined by regulators there. What's up with that? I think you have yeah, a lot of uh, we're not alone. I think in terms of uh, the attention of regulators in Europe and other other places. But that was really not something associated with our uh, licensing business. It was really related to uh, a small number of cases uh, of our chip business. We'll work through it. I'm, I'm sure we'll, uh, we will uh, have a lot of activity related to um, an appeal or the equivalent of an appeal, uh, and, and we'll move on. Do Europeans like to pick on big tech companies? That's a softball down the middle of the plate. Come on. I think um, they clearly there's a lot of activity in that, that direction, but I think um, you know, a lot of that is behind us, which is, which is great. Okay. And then let's talk about the situation where you guys were looking to buy NXP and then that didn't happen. And on the other hand, Broadcom was going to buy you guys and then that didn't happen. 
I mean, first of all, I, I, this is a lot of stuff going on. And yeah. then second of all, can you sort of talk about what went down in both of those instances? Sure. And I, th- I think the, the takeaway is um, we're in an interesting spot in the, in the industry. Yeah, why? People yeah, care about us. Right. Okay. You're kind uh, of the nexus or something? Well, if, if you look at connectivity and you look mm-hmm. at the, the kind of the future of, of things that are connected, Qualcomm's name comes up and comes up for a reason. And so therefore, I think we tend to grab a little extra attention, either inbound or outbound. And so um, that's really what you see. So if you look at uh, our acquisition of NXP, I think that kind of got caught up in the, uh, in the early part of the, the trade war. Um, we moved on. I think we moved on in a way that um, um, provided stability to our investors, but also moved on in a way that I think is, is very friendly with the Chinese government, which is it's not really about Qualcomm in China. It's more about being at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, we also had a, a, you know, a hostile takeover from Broadcom, which uh, ended up becoming um, blocked by the CFIUS process. Again, yeah. the company's moved on. Um, and certainly post the, uh, I think a lot of that was about who was going to capture the value of the Apple business. And, uh, you know, it's clear that we, we, uh, we're in a strong position now. And I think that's well behind us as well. So um, a lot of those issues are, you know, I would say ancient history from the perspective of Qualcomm. Ancient uh, timeline can be a year in our industry. Um, but now it's really about, hey, wow, we have uh, quite an opportunity ahead to take care, you know, take advantage of with 5G. I mean, given what's going on with all the trade tensions, um, does that mean the flurry of M&A in your business is probably on hiatus for a while? I don't think necessarily. I, I, I think you're seeing some people who have more of an investment or, or their, their company's more about M&A. They might be uh, moving away from the traditional targets or targets that require uh, approval in China. But I, but I don't think the industry uh, and the trend for there to be continued M&A, consolidation in the semiconductor space, and people that have exposure to China saying, hey, I, I can't get uh, approval from SAM or you know, Mofcom or whomever, um, I, I think you're just sort of... Uh, People trying to figure out when's the right time to uh, to do M and A, for example, and and uh, I think you'll continue to see that trend of of more consolidation continue. Yeah, why is that? I mean, so people can start new chip companies and grow them pretty fast, scale them, and then they become important players, and then yep. companies like yours want to snap them up. Well, it's interesting. I, I would say there are less and less chip companies starting. It's very expensive. It's uh, it's difficult to get exits. Uh, and so it doesn't draw as much capital as it did like 20 years ago uh, in terms of startup capital. You, do, you are seeing uh, people do, I would say, specialized AI chips, um, maybe with the intention of, of being acquired by a bigger company or a cloud company or a company like ours, for example. Um, but you tend to see less and less startups happening. A lot of the startups are happening in different areas. Um, but what you are seeing is you're seeing uh, companies that are reasonably high scale, you know, single-digit, mid-single-digit to high, um, you know, maybe a $10 billion level, trying to figure out, hey, who do, I, who do I work with long-term? And the reason is, scale is very important. R&D scale and the access to the leading node is very important in certain aspects of the semiconductor industry, certainly in the one that we, we play in. And so you tend to see people saying, well, how, well, how do I get the ability to get the technology and the, and the R&D scale that's required to go into these high R&D intensity markets um, and continue to be uh, continue to grow. So I think you tend to see more M&A at the medium and medium-large 
level than versus the very small. Um, getting back to the trade war a little bit, how do you communicate with the government and are you satisfied with a level of communication that yep. comes from the government when it comes to things that are changing? I mean, how do they tell you? Yeah, you know, um, I think for certain companies and we're certainly in this category, very high bandwidth communication, actually. Uh, and in terms of how it works, I go there a lot. Washington. Yeah, a lot. The White uh, House? The White House, you know, it's been documented. We've been, we've been there along with others. Mm -hmm. um, and the way to, I think the way to think about that is there's a lot of interest on the part of the administration to get input from the people who are impacted. And I think, I think that surprises people to some degree, mm -hmm. but it is absolutely true. I, I think um, we get a lot of, um, I think, uh, interest in getting our perspective. And then separate from, I would say, the, the executive branch, in, in, on the Hill, tremendous interest to understand the ramifications of 5G and how um, laws and policy should evolve in order to make sure that we're successful. And as a result, a lot of them come and ask us what to do. So I would say, for me, I spend a lot of time uh, trying to make sure that people are educated. And part of the, you know, part of the responsibility of a company that has uh, a strong position in the technology is you can't complain about um, the laws and, and policy that people are making unless you're there helping to educate the people that are making it. And there's a lot of desire for that to, uh, to occur, and we're happy to do it. What about the Chinese government, Steve? I mean, you have a team there. Do they try to provide input to the Chinese government, to the Chinese government? Are they able to communicate with you? I'm just curious about that. Yeah, I mean, we, we spend a lot of time there. I spend a lot of time there as well. Um, and, uh, you know, at the at the senior levels, we actually have a, a reasonable amount of access. Um, and it makes sense if you think about it. We, we are a strong partner to a lot of Chinese handset companies. We're a strong right. partner to Huawei um, across a lot of different areas. But most importantly, you're not going to see a strong 5G ecosystem without Huawei and Qualcomm agreeing through the standards bodies as to how things are going to work. So we're, we're a player in China the same way that we're a player in the United States. And we get, we get access and, and people are interested in our, in our perspectives, which is, um, I think, quite, quite helpful. And we, we go there and, you know, that's part of the, part of the responsibility of having the CEO title or, or senior titles is you have to spend your time doing there and doing that, and, and I do it. Are you able to manufacture, um, fabricate here in the United States? And what would it take to do more of that here? Well, we, we do a lot of it, actually. If you, if you look at our... Uh, footprint in terms of where we manufacture. We tend to have the majority of our manufacturing either in Taiwan, South Korea, or in the United States. We're probably one of the larger semiconductor companies that manufacture in the United States. Now remember, we don't own our own factories. We have what's called a fabless semiconductor model, which is that we outsource the, the, um, the manufacturing either to TSMC or to Samsung or to SMIC or to Global Foundries and um, SMIC being one in, 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 in China. Uh, but by and large, through our collaboration and our, our uh, work on manufacturing in Samsung, we do a lot in Austin, Texas. We do some manufacturing in upstate New York through Global Foundries, and we have for a long time. Uh, and so um, for us, it's, uh, it's, it's something we've been doing for, you know, for quite a long time, actually. So White House want you to do more? You know, I would say for us, it's, it's less because we don't make things yeah. so much, it, and it tends to be constrained by where it is. We, we, we tend to be less, the discussion tends to be less about that right. and more about 
how can we have proper policy that that helps 5G, you know, helps helps a company like Qualcomm or an ecosystem in the United States based on 5G be successful. And last question, Steve. This uh, program is called Influencers, and I'm curious as to how you see yourself using your influence on the world. Yeah, I think you know, for us uh, and for me personally, we. Um, we have a lot of influence on a key technology roadmap that is important to not only many industries, but for almost every person. So if you look, it's hard to find a technology or anything that people make that is more prevalent, more ubiquitous than cellular and having bigger impact. I mean, I, uh, I used to joke around to my kid. I have two daughters, and, and, uh, and one time they wanted to know what I worked on. This is when they were younger. We were in the Dallas airport, and I said, okay, let's go stand in the Dallas airport. And I, I said, close your eyes, spin around twice, and then open them up. I bet you you will see something that your father worked on. And um, so I, I view it as there's really no other technology that has so much impact on the world. And we get, we get to work on it. We get to lead in it. And, uh, you know, it's a great, it's a great um, sort of motivating thing to have that much um, you know, impact on, on other people's lives kind of in a good way. Great. Steve Mollenkopf, CEO of Qualcomm, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Andy Serwer. You've been watching Influencers. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Sirwork.